Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Archaeo Animals, the podcast all about zooarchaeology. I'm your host, Alex Fitzpatrick, and with me, as always, Simona Palanda. And today is a very special episode. One, because it's the final installment of our mini-series that we've been doing for the last couple months called Where in the World, where we finally break out of our British shelves and enter other parts of the world to take a look at the zooarchaeology there. But it's also due to me not being able to count. Today's our 50th episode. We should have done something special. I was going to do something special. And uh, I... I I mean, I, I think I've, I've talked about it on this show, but I'm just, I, I'm really bad at math and counting and numbers. And I think it just like goes over our head as well, because I think our first anniversary as well, they completely like went over our heads only after it went live. It's like, wait, so we've been doing this a year and we went with fish. Well, that was just I- cruel irony, I think. But yeah, I mean, so next episode, next episode, we will have our belated happy 50th episode celebration which we have a very special thing planned but yeah so let's pretend this is like 49.5 and uh, we'll get on to it because today's also unique not only because it's the 50th episode not only because it's the last installment of this mini series but we've been breaking each of these episodes into continents for ease. And today we'll be looking at the final one, which is Antarctica. Might be a little short, this one. A little, yeah, there's a lot of um, brain stretching in this episode in terms of content. But I think we, we did a good job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course, um, Antarctica itself is our most southern continent. And literally sitting at the south pole of the planet. However, because otherwise it's going to be a, a real, real <laughs> short episode, uh, we'll be broadening our sight a, li- a little bit over to the Antarctic region surrounding the continent as well. So we'll include offshore islands, just the South Shetlands, South Orkneys, the South Sandwich Islands, among others. I got really confused for a moment when I first like read through the notes. That's uh, like the Shetlands, Orkneys. We're like, wait, what? Uh, oh, the South Shetlands and the South Orkneys. Oh, okay, real, real creative guys. Yeah, there's a lot of lot of South X Y Z uh, islands we'll have in this episode. We'll be sure to make sure we specify. But yeah, I can understand why it might be a little confusing. Now, what makes this even trickier is that Antarctica has never had a quote-unquote permanent human population. I mean, even today, the human population that does exist on Antarctica is mainly research staff, so they're not really there permanently. So what we would consider archaeology would be fairly contemporary, especially compared to the other episodes we've done. That said, there's still archaeology that's being uncovered in exploring the kind of early years of human contact with the continent. So for example, the oldest human remains found so far were from an indigenous woman, likely from Southern Chile, who's been interpreted as a potential sealer who had actually died in the 1800s. And there was like an entire sealing camp found near her body. So there is archeology span per se. It's just definitely very contemporary in the grand scheme of things, but it it is really important to understand because it's, kind of telling us the story of this continent that's been so out of reach for ages and how we've slowly got human contact with it. And I guess how we've shaped it over time, if you will. For better or worse, I guess. And uh, I th- we'll get more into that. There's a l- if you like geopolitics, folks, then you'll love this episode. I don't know like 
how much work has been done under archaeological conditions in Antarctica, because that, that probably is sort of even like, it would not surprise me if there would be even older remains than that. I think there probably is. There is a surprising amount of archaeology when I first like started researching it. You know, I really thought we were going to have to stretch it. But there's been a, a fair amount of archaeology done. Again, it's very contemporary in the grand scheme of things, because I think the oldest stuff is about the 1800s. But who knows, really? I mean, you know, possibilities are endless in terms of their potentially being even older, you know, remains somewhere. But yeah, because even if it's in the form of uh, of shipwrecks of populations trying to reach the continent and just going, oh, well, never mind. But yeah, so we will start, as we've been doing all these episodes, with our kind of wild species that they're just there, usually don't mean anything more than they're there or they've been hunted. And uh, let's be real, a lot of this episode will be talking about hunted species. And we will start with the Antarctic fur seal. Arctocephalus gazella, which again, confusing, nothing to do with gazelles. Yeah, there's going to be some really interesting names as well in here. So it's a uh, pinniped species or a seal species that is technically located in the sub-Antarctic regions that are, you know, just north of the actual Antarctic continent. Unsurprisingly, given its name, the fur, fur seal has been mostly threatened by sealers hunting them for their furs. And interestingly, it's these sealers that actually provide much of the early archaeological record in the Antarctic region. Excavations of 19th century sealing camps at, say, the, the South Shetland Islands, for example, have actually revealed the kind of methods in which sealers would utilize their surroundings to create temporary shelters, either in natural occurrences like caves or through scavenging materials like whale bones and seal skins to create huts along with rocks. And, you know, uh, seal skins, I think, will be another kind of recurring theme in this. Uh, obviously, sealing kind of brought people to the continent, but seal skins themselves were utilized as a raw material for clothing, such as footwear, although sealers also brought a fair amount of their own personal materials and items with them. And a lot of that is still found in the archaeological record there. But it's really interesting to kind of see that importance of seals in the Antarctic record, not just as the artifact itself, but like such a huge influence on how the archaeological record was created to begin with. The fact that, you know, the seals attracted humans, humans come here, and that starts that kind of record being created. And archaeology of sealers has actually been used as a framework by some archaeologists kind of look at the way capitalism has eventually spread to Antarctica via, you know, the need for seal furs leading towards that geopolitical situation that I was kind of talking about earlier, where many countries are kind of trying to exploit the continent for various reasons. And ain't that just the way? um, Going away from the um, poor fur seals, our next one, we have the, the equally poor Blue whale, Balnoptera musculus, so hashtag muscly boy. Um, <laughs> so, are blue whales particularly muscular? I mean, they must be like all that stuff. Well, like, well, they're all fat, right? That's why I feel kinship with them. Don't, don't fat shame the whales. I said I feel kinship with them. <sighs> blue whales are a species of baleen whale, um, meaning that they those sort of massive plates of baleen as opposed to teeth. The baleen itself are very similar in appearance and feeling to actual like sort of bristles of hair, like on your hairbrush or something. Um, and they're actually made out of keratin, so like the same material that makes up our nails, uh, hair, etc., um, which then gets stiffened through calcination. Baleen are used for what's called filter feeding, where sort of basically prey, just small fish and krill, get sucked into the mouth with water, which is then pushed out of the mouth through the baleen, thus keeping the actual prey inside. Baleen, which is sometimes mistakenly referred to as whalebone, has also been utilised as raw material in tools, weapons, and various forms of ornamentation and decor. As some of you may know, blue whales are in fact the largest living creature <laughs> to have ever existed on the planet. So... Hashtag big muscly boys. Um, 
And they've been known to be very, very difficult to hunt. But that's never stopped people, has it? No, and it definitely did not stop people out from nearly wiping them out in the Antarctic region with approximately 330,000 blue whales killed in the 20th century. Brothers, well, this is a jolly episode. Yep. <laughs> Capitalism and, you know, wiping out the species. The most fun episode. Oh, like it's, it's the same like you have, like, continent. People arrive to the continent. People eradicate <laughs> animals and just start again. But uh, in fact, the whaling industry is what develops much of the archaeological record in the Antarctic region after sealers. So I guess it's thanks to whaling that we get sort of this archaeology, although really, if I had to pick, I'd rather have the whales alive and well. Their hair such as life. And what we mostly tend to get is um, are the material remains that were left behind during these expeditions, particularly in the form of ship shipwrecks underwater. Yeah, Antarctica is really interesting in that it is kind of just a history of exploitation. You know, you have the sealers come in and then the whalers come in. And now, you know, you do have research teams, which are foreseeably there for good reasons. But there's all this really intricate geopolitical stuff going on as well. So not entirely goodwill, I guess. So it's it's very interesting. And I can imagine that uh, if you're one of those nerds that likes politics and political science-y things, Antarctica is probably an interesting case study in terms of international negotiation. I don't know. I don't really understand that stuff myself. So I will talk more about... Penguins! The, yes. Although I also wanted to say, is this the first time we've talked about whales on this show? I think we've covered whales before, because I remember like mentioning sort of artifacts made out of whalebone. It might during our sort of British archaeology miniseries, because I think a lot of during sort of the Scandinavian sort yeah, of that's what I was thinking. periods, yeah, you do you tend to find yeah, items made out of whalebone and such. And to be fair, even like later on and earlier on, I think it just they're most common in that particular time period. We should do a full whaling episode, especially because I am very fascinated by whaling. My grandfather, my great grandfather on the Norwegian part of my family, was a whaler from Norway. So we have a bunch of whaling stuff in our house, I think, still somewhere. But very interesting. And I'm also, I always found whalebone to be the most uh, aesthetically pleasing out of raw materials from animals, which is a bit morbid. But I think it's nice to look at, bad to get from whales. Anyway, we're talking about penguins, which are my favorite animal on, on the entire world. <laughs> so we'll talk about the emperor penguin instead and i chose the emperor penguin because it's the tallest of all penguin species and it's perhaps the ideal image conjured up when one thinks of penguins which i do a lot because again penguins are my favorite animal and they have a very distinct yellow orange kind of ombre effect from their shoulders to their bellies they're very cute but sadly, we need to talk about dead emperor penguins because they actually factor into the archaeological excavations of expedition bases located on Ross Island at the site of the Terra Nova hut at Cape Evans. Archaeologists were actually able to recover the well-preserved remains of eight emperor penguins. And I've seen the photos and it makes me very sad because they, they just, you know, they're very well-preserved and it's they're just dead penguins. But they were killed and saved as food in light of severe rationing of food during a 1914 to 1917 stay by an expedition team that was unable to gather further supplies for three years. And again, that's another theme that will be talked about in this episode in people not knowing how to survive Antarctica. It's like people not, not packing enough supplies or people just getting stranded. And, like, and a lot of the, the worst parts kind of carried by the animals, sadly. And, and uh, penguins are so cute. So it, was, it did make me really sad to see those pictures. So right now I'm, I'm picturing like a really bad reality, like stranded in Antarctica. Ugh. I would let, I would simply just let the penguin eat me. Just saying. I mean, probably would. If he, I mean, they are fish. Yeah, no, they probably would. What What is a human but a, a very big fish that's on land? <laughs> yeah, anyway, I think, I don't know. I just, I, 
like I said, we'll we'll get into this in probably in the next segment, uh, particularly. But a couple themes that we're going to hit here, obviously exploitation and just people not being prepared. And it, it makes sense. I mean, Antarctica was such a diff- such a different kind of environment for a lot of people when they came here. And, you know, well, like I said, we'll, we'll talk a bit more about the kind of geopolitical issues with the fact that all these countries wanted to claim Antarctica for themselves. So there was basically kind of a race to you know, claim land on the continent, but it was also the worst possible place to try and do anything at any speed. Yeah, so I guess many of them just, yeah, just, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and like I said, we'll, we'll definitely talk about this in the upcoming segment, because believe it or not, I was able to make a list of domestic hits in Antarctica. So if you want to take a guess as to what, kind of species will be on that list while we take a break and we'll be back with that segment every day we rise challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in at u.s border patrol protecting our borders is more than a job it's a calling agents answer the call working together to keep our country and communities safe if you are ready for a new mission Join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we are back with Archaeoanimals, the podcast all about zooarchaeology. We are talking about the zooarchaeology of Antarctica, of all places, as part of our mini-series, which is coming to an end, called Where in the World? And... We are going to talk about domesticated animals because I found them, folks. I did the impossible, but we found them. But still, I found them. Because we thought, like, you know, you, you, you couldn't have possibly have heard enough about sheep. You're like, where's my sheep? I want to hear about some more sheep. And I said, by God, by God, we would find some domesticates to talk about. And to be fair... Actually, no, we do we do talk about sheep in this episode. I just remembered. So, you know what? Never mind. I was going to be like, oh, well, at least we have some different ones. Nope. It's the same ones, same species. We <laughs> didn't even have to do this. We probably could have just replayed the same <laughs> domesticate segment from the last couple episodes. Boy, well, some of them are fantastic names. They're, yes, this is true. So we, let's get right into it. So obviously, we're not really talking about domesticates that kind of sprung up from the continent, are we? Instead, we're kind of talking, I guess we're cheating a little bit, but these are domesticated animals that were introduced to Antarctica. Because obviously, as we we ended the last segment, we were talking about how the history of Antarctica is a history of exploitation and loads of humans coming in and geopolitical issues, all this kind of stuff. So you have all these human visitors coming to the continent and unsurprisingly, they brought their own animals as part of their expeditions. So basically this segment, and actually the case studies as well, it will be showcasing how human-imposed movement of species can radically transform a zooarchaeology. So looking forward to zooarchaeologists and thousand trying to figure these this ones out. Or, or in other words, like, let's bring this animal over here. What could possibly go wrong? I also just realized I, I gave you a break, Simona, and did not provide any scientific names because for the most part, we're not really talking about specific, very specific breeds or species. We're talking kind of broadly because lots of different types of these domesticated animals were brought over. And, you know, just giving you a break, Simona, don't worry. That's okay. I might just remember the scientific names of the domesticates. Okay, well then, what's the scientific name for sled dogs? <laughs> well... Probably not for specifically sled dog, but it'll just go under dogs. It'll be canis familiaris. <sighs> okay, I guess you just love doing the scientific name so much. I won't take that away from you. But yeah, 
I mean, we have talked about dogs before, but we haven't talked about sled dogs. So important. You can't see it, but I'm, I'm pointing at the screen informatively. Anyway, these dogs would be harnessed to a sled, obviously, in a pack. And they were trained to pull the sled across snow environments. So unsurprisingly, this was kind of the main choice of transportation for some of the earliest expeditions of Antarctica. Now, sled dog breeds were often selected due to their strength, their speed, and their ability to handle cold temperatures. So a lot of breeds that were chosen were things like huskies. Now, unfortunately, and boy, is this segment going to slightly be a bummer. Um, sled dogs, <laughs> yeah, sled dogs often found themselves meeting the worst possible fates in Antarctica. Many were not provided the food necessary for them to survive, leading most of them to die of starvation. Others found themselves cold during expeditions due to a lack of supplies and resources. And in fact, some expeditions found themselves turning to their dogs when food ran out. So not fun. It's not exactly Bolto, is it? Like the, the, the cartoon adaptation? It, no. No, it's... It, 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 no, <laughs> it's, it's not. <laughs> but yeah, I mean... But to, to make that even jollier... Yeah, maybe. Um, uh, uh, dogs uh, were the, weren't the only ones that met such horrible fates. So please, Sandy, cover your ears. Good. Right. My, my dogs sort of sat right next to me, so just like, yeah, just cover your ears. Don't, 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 don't listen to this bit, or, or the previous bit, or any of it, really. But yeah, dogs weren't the only animals that were brought over to Antarctica as a means of transport. Ponies were also brought, for reasons. I mean, ponies. This was the um, strategy for the Terra Nova expedition, a particularly ill-fated expedition where the main party of explorers, including its captain, Robert Park and Scott, all died attempting to return from the South Pole. So out of all the choices, because choices they were, uh, that Scott made for the trip, including attempting to use a mixed transport strategy of sled dogs and ponies at the same time. First slight flaw in that plan, is that the person that was charged with uh, acquiring the ponies didn't know much about horses, so the animals themselves were not particularly fit for purpose. Second issue, the snowshoes that were brought along for the ponies, because they would be absolutely necessary for them to move through the snow, did not actually fit all of them. So, unsurprisingly, much like the sled dogs, many of them ended up in horrible fates, just eaten by said sled dogs, drowned and or eaten by orcas, etc., etc. So I guess that's more like never-ending story. Yeah, and I wanted to, you know, point out the Terra Nova expedition in particular because it is that expedition we were kind of talking about previously. People were racing towards the, the South Pole and the Robert Falcon Scott's expedition was one of the ones that was racing. There's another one who's, I just already completely forgot who the other person was, but it was two teams basically racing. And this guy, Scott, was like, well, we got to get there as fast as possible. So I'm going to pick the most in <laughs> incompetent people to make the decisions. And then they all died. So didn't didn't work out for anyone across the board. But I guess some orcas got fed. Mm -hmm. Also, some sled dogs. Well, I think the sled dogs also eventually died. So, but with a full belly. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, sorry, I mean, I'm, I'm laughing a lot, but it's more of a nervous laugh. It's just, oh, oh dear. It's pretty horrible. Yeah, it's it, this is not a fun segment, and uh, frankly, it doesn't get any better because if the animals weren't just dying of poor choices, they were dying because they were being cold, and that's basically. The last two examples we have on this segment. So we had to do it. We had to bring sheep along because I think we, we've maybe almost talked about sheep in every single episode of this miniseries. Might be one that we haven't, but. We might have like left it out for Oceania. Yeah. Because like, oh, not sheep again. There's a reason why they're called, these are the domestic species. They're, they're, very fit for purpose for the most part, except for Antarctica, apparently. And that's the lesson that we're learning today is that domesticates, they work well in most places, but not Antarctica. 
so sheep were alongside uh, animals for transport. They were brought in not to do any of those kind of, you know, sledding or anything. They were just brought along for longer occupations in the Antarctic. You know, once you got there and you had to stay there, many people needed to have these kind of domestic kits. So, for example, many of the whalers who took up business in the region would establish these whaling stations on the various uh, Antarctic islands, bringing along domesticated species as well. So this was the case for the Kerguelen Islands, where sheep were first introduced in 1909. And as of 2014, sheep still remained on the island, although there's been a campaign to cull the population for the purposes of conserving the native species there. So it's kind of a tough decision. And, you know, I didn't think we were going to have to talk about cats in this part, but uh, apparently there's a colony of feral cats on the Kregalen Islands as well. So domesticates really, uh, really got around in the Antarctic region. In spite of all odds, because it's not, you know, the easiest of climates, and yet, you know, life finds a way. It's very interesting, actually, to, like, kind of compare these two side by side, in that, you know, you have sled dogs and horses that, I mean, I guess, in what respect, they were getting put through the ringer. They were going through the environment, pulling sleds and being beasts of burden and whatnot. So they had it really tough. And then you have all these other domesticates that didn't necessarily have to do any of that kind of hard work and they apparently flourished. Although again, I think, you know, these domesticates really weren't brought on the continent proper. They were kind of in the islands around it. So not, I mean, it's still cold, don't get me wrong, but not potentially not as bad in terms of rough climate. Yeah, like not full-blown South Pole. No, like they were, they're still in in the area. So it's definitely still cold. It's surprising that a lot of these species kind of just chilled out. But um, yeah. Actually sheep, because sheep seem to have this determination to just kill themselves. (laughs) They'll do just anything in their power. Like, oh, is that a cliff? Let me just run towards it and off it and see what happens. Yeah, so, hmm. I wonder how they were so uh, forthright in staying alive in this case. Very interesting. And, I mean, I think, I'm not sure, I couldn't find any up-to-date information as to whether or not there's still sheep there. It seems like they were culling a lot of these sheep, but who knows, to be honest, there might still be one out there. Yeah. Well, if you do know, or if you've been to Antarctica, please, like, tweet at us at RQAnimals. And tell us more about sheep in Antarctica. If you're a sheep in Antarctica, please let us know. We'd love to interview you. <laughs> also, how do you know how to use a podcast? That's amazing. <laughs> There's so much I need to ask you. But th- that's how they made it out there so long. Oh my gosh. But yeah, and I guess the final domesticate that has um, spread across Antarctica is the pig, which, similarly to sheep, they were also brought along with by whalers and scientists setting up sort of permanent stations on various islands around the Antarctic region. Now, one of the islands has become so overrun by, with pigs by the mid to late like sort of 19th century that it was eventually named Ilo Cochon, so like or Pig Island. I mean, it was also <laughs> there you go. Um, I mean, it was also home to like sheep cats and, and rabbits, all of which were absolutely all introduced as well. But I guess mainly pigs, which have uh, since all been eradicated, I should expect. So P- Pig Island is the, the pigless island now. Uh, no more Pig Island. Ilo Cochon! It just delights me. It delights me to know it, that is... <laughs> It's just the pig island that was in the Antarctic. How did I go through my whole life, 29 years of my life, without knowing that there was a pig island in the Antarctic? Yeah. And it's kind of like, it's, it's the redemption arc, because we've gone, you know, from like, from New Shetland, South Shetland and South Orkney, which is just, you know, like names of archipelagos that were already there, with just the South added to it, to Ilo Cochon. Creativity, like plus 100%. 
oh, I'm going to go down there and put more pigs on there. <laughs> they can't stop me. <laughs> well, know. they can't, but the protocol on environmental protection to the Antarctic Treaty can't stop you. I mean, they're technically, they're basically native species now on Pig Island. You're telling me that pigs are not native to Pig Island? You're out of your mind. <laughs> I have a case. But yeah, there was, Simona is right though, there, in 1998, there was the Protocol on Environmental Protection to the Antarctic Treaty, and that was enacted, and it basically created a ban on bringing non-native species to the continent. That being said, it has not stopped invasive species from taking a hold. Now, obviously, we've done a whole episode on kind of invasive species, you can listen to that, uh, but, you know, it happens. It's very hard not to have that happen let's be real where people go species kind of follow in some way or another now unsurprisingly most of these are marine invertebrates that probably came along via ships so your crabs mussels barnacles algae but there is a worry that rodents may eventually make their way over such as rats so who knows we might have a rat island trying to remember what the word for rat in uh french is and i'm blanking i know french <laughs> i think it's also like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy but yeah i mean you know makes sense oh that's all right my, my translator is on point i i asked for the the french for rat and he gave me the italian and be like oh yeah no new latin language close enough that'll do yeah i mean oh raton ilo raton yeah, or just, yeah, ha. So yeah, it's still spelled rat, but ha. Languages are silly. Um, <laughs> and yet so beautiful, because it gave us Pig Island. And I'll, it doesn't, I'll never get off this high. No, I, You know what? Actually, I'm glad that our 50th episode turned out to be this, because it gave us Pig Island. We're celebrating our 50th anniversary. 50th anniversary? 50th episode. We're not that old yet. Uh, but we're <laughs> celebrating it on Pig Island. And, you know... Hopefully you, the listener, are there with us mentally on Pig Island. Il a cochon. <laughs> so it's just like a meditation thing. Picture Pig Island. <laughs> yeah, although like no, the, the, the French, you know, there is a, just a, a, a je sais pas quoi about the French, just the il a cochon. Il a cochon. <laughs> it just beautiful. So yeah, uh, you know, as, as our French listeners angrily start emailing us about how poor our fr- pronunciation is, on French, which, you know, not surprise, sound like my French teacher from way back when. We'll take a break and we will come back with our case studies, which, I mean, slightly less depressing-ish. There's some real nice creativity there. Yeah. (laughs) See you after the break, folks. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we are back with Archaeo Animals, the podcast all about archaeology. We are talking about the zooarchaeology of Antarctica, of all places, as part of our final episode of our Aware of the World mini-series. And, I mean, I guess it's the 50th episode, so should we do do our bit about the case studies, or what? Ah, <laughs> uh, go on. I mean, more than case studies, because we, we won't be covering sort of archaeological sites per se. I guess we'll be cover, covering more, like, interesting stories surrounding animals in antarctica yeah because you know we i'll give us credit we were able to do a, a basically a full-length episode on antarctica which seemed impossible before we started researching and there actually is a lot of interesting stuff to talk about when it comes to the zooarchaeology and archaeology of the continents but you know not necessarily as much that we could fill our case studies so instead i just found some kind of fun animal stories because hey you know who doesn't love a story about cows and that's the thing i was thinking about when we were doing our our last segment i was like 
hmm, we didn't get any cows in, did we? And then I remembered, oh, wait, we have a whole case study dedicated to cows, baby. Yeah, because, I mean, we've been, I mean, uh, I think we're keeping on sort of our series of uh, very interestingly named cattle. (laughs) (laughs) If any of you have listened to our previous episode of the mini-series focusing on Oceania, we gave a notable mention to Nickers. Well, the He's a steer, isn't he? Steer. Technically, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, the steer knickers hailing from Australia. Uh, and now we have some similarly very interesting, ne- interestingly named animals. Because, again, you know, like uh, along with sheep and pigs and dogs and cats and rabbits and uh, a host of other domesticates, cows were indeed also brought to Antarctica. And the particular breed of cattle that we've decided to cover for one of these case studies are the Guernsey cows, specifically the cows that U.S. Admiral Richard E. Byrd took to Guernsey, uh, to Guernsey, to Antarctica in 1933. So he he brought three cows with him on his second expedition, and they were named Klondike Gay Naira, Deerfoot Guernsey Maid, and my personal favourite, Foremost Southern girl. <laughs> it's just, it's so specific that it couldn't just be Southern girl. It has to be the foremost Southern girl. <laughs> and I guess they'd run out of steam by the end of it because a calf was actually born during the trip and they just named it Iceberg, which is fitting. Yeah, that's fun. I mean, but, it's but like, you know, it could be like most esteemed Iceberg. Yeah, I'm surprised. Do you think some people were like, oh, that's like in bad taste? Because Titanic was only like, what, 20 years previous? Oh. <laughs> I don't know if I just thought about that now. <laughs> it's just one person going, yeesh, I don't know about this. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Guernsey cows are from, uh, you know, uh, you you. As the name suggests, dairy cattle that is not, not native to Antarctica. N- none of the cattle is native to Antarctica. But they're actually native to the island of Guernsey. And they're known for their particularly rich milk, which were then exported in the United States around the 20th century. So these cows were brought over for a year. So as part of the working dairy and also as kind of a novelty media stunt for the U.S. to stake its claim on the continent. It's again going on, as we discussed before, that several nations tried to sort of like attempted at different points in time to sort of stake their claim of Antarctica. And you see sort of France, Norway, the United Kingdom, again, like some of many countries that were trying to sort of like carve a piece of Antarctica for themselves. But the Hughes Doctrine stated that claims had to be made via settlement as opposed to discovery. So, of course, having domesticated animals on the land would aid in such a claim. Of course, aside from geopolitical use, another claim was that the cows were vital for solving the milk problem of the expedition. Which I guess, yes and no, because powdered milk was available at that point. But there you go. Again, also like part of it, so there was a media element to it, as so in the 1930s, sort of fresh milk and the daring sectors were sort of turned into icons, sort of Americana, Purity, health, and nationalism. I need to emphasize this as the American on this podcast, because honestly, even talking to my partner, he's always just like, what's the deal with milk in America? Like, big dairy is a real thing. And like, had such a chokehold, especially like, even for me growing up in the 90s, dairy, like, milk being pushed as a very important, vital thing. You know, we had the Got Milk campaign and things like that. And I mean, me and my partner have been watching YouTube videos of like old American commercials or adverts, as you say here. And almost like 70% of them are milk and dairy based. Okay, I had no idea. Yeah, it's it's something that I don't think if you're not from America, I don't think you know. And I think even if you're from America, you may just think that's normal. But like watching all this stuff with my partner and he's just like, I don't get it. Like, why is there so many commercials? Because, you know, we watch a lot of like 90s commercials. So like stuff like, you know, drink milk every day that gives you strong bones or like 
the best cheese ever made or things like that. And it's like, yeah, there's, there's just like, they would lobby so much that you would just have so many adverts about milk, just literally just milk and dairy. <laughs> it's very strange. It's interesting because where I'm from, well, I've not lived in my country of origin for quite some time now, but I remember most of the adverts being cars and or medication. Cars and medication. Well, yeah, medication and that cars. too. But yeah, it's it's something, it is, I mean, you know, we, we don't have the capacity to really get into it, but it is kind of problematic in that it is definitely based on this idea of purity and health and American nationalism. And, you know, especially in the 30s, this was a big thing. So it makes sense that this was a huge stunt as part of their kind of geopolitical chess game that they were playing with other countries by bringing these cows and being like, oh, look, you know, look how American this is. There's nothing more American than an exported cow or an imported cow. Cow, cow upon the frost. Yeah. Uh, but I, I just wanted to emphasize that because I don't think people realize how big of a thing this is in America and kind of. Like, I don't know if it still is. Obviously, I also haven't lived in America in a, a fair amount of time, almost a decade now. But, I mean, like I said, even in the 90s, which I like to maintain, were not that long ago. <laughs> you still saw, I mean, and I'm lactose intolerant, so I really felt kind of put out by this. But, I mean, massive posters, like the of the Got Milk uh, campaign was very popular in school. Just going like, you mock me? You know what the Got Milk campaign was, Simona? Sorry? Got milk. You know what that was? I think I've heard of it in English class. It got sort of briefly referred to, but just something about just drink milk. It's very good for you. Drink milk. Have you drunk any milk yet? Drink some milk now. Drink milk. Yeah, it was. I don't know if it was anywhere else, if it was in the UK or anything, but in America, it was just like they would get celebrities to basically like pretend to drink a thing of milk and they would have like a milk mustache. And so like my main memory was in our gym in my elementary school, there's a big picture of Michael Jordan with a glass of big glass of milk and a milk mustache and it says got milk. And that was kind of the thing. But they were just like postered everywhere in the 90s. <laughs> Again, extremely lactose intolerant, cannot drink milk. So just felt rude. I actually, according to dairyfoods.com, in 2010, UK launched its own version of got milk. 2010? That's yeah. so long. I don't think I don't think we had it, but like I know about the got milk from from America. I think. Yeah, that would make sense. Um, wait, I think I might have a David Beckham one. Two seconds. I mean, David Beckham was famous in America too. Yeah. Allegedly. Um, I've I've just linked it there. I want your I want your actual reaction to this, Vinny Jones. Oh god! <laughs> oh my gosh, that's brilliant. Yeah, so like, I, I, no, so thanks for putting this in perspective because um, I knew of the Got Milk campaign ad, but um, didn't realize it was that that big a deal. It's extremely wild, and it's extremely funny to see it take place in something that you know very early on. And but again, you can see with that context how it really would have been kind of a power move. And, you know, that's the other thing about these cows, they were good media. The bird expeditions were all privately funded. So having a stunt like this got sponsors really good coverage. And the cows were actually seen as celebrities of the time. So, you know, it's not really zoo archaeology, but it's a case setting animal kind of symbolism. And let's be real, you could probably find remains of the dairy somewhere, maybe. But you know, it, 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 it's that thing we always talk about. If You know, it's not just about the bones. It's about the way you see the animals. But uh, so speaking of the way to see the animals, I want to see a poster of Foremost Southern Girl. This is true, yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, sure, to... There must have been promotional material. Yeah, I mean, there are some pictures. I just can't figure out which one is Foremost Southern Girl. Now, if anyone out there wants to draw a Foremost Southern Girl, maybe with a, a got milk poster type thing send it to us on twitter we love to see uh fan art of our, our podcast which i could it be an episode of our you know cartoon series that never happened of like <laughs> general Sopopoulos granarius and pliny the elder that travel through time so they could recover the general's like human body back 
And so oh like, they, while they're time jumps, they're in Antarctica and like foremost Southern girl helps them back onto like, the time traveling ship. I mean, if producers are out there listening to this, you know, get in touch. <laughs> we, this is a gold mine. <laughs> and we could have, an, you know, Big Dairy in America can sponsor us, clearly. I'll, I'll, I'll drink some milk and get violently ill afterwards for that. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> anyway, let's uh, hit up our last case study before we finish this episode. And we're moving away from cows to an animal we haven't really talked about. And uh, let's talk about the hamster experiments. So during the 1960s, of course, Carl Hamner from UCLA and Giri Raj Singh Sarohi who was the, actually the first citizen from India to visit Antarctica, they ran experiments on the continent to see if certain species got their dineural senses from their rotation of the Earth. Now, dineural neural, uh, senses are basically the kind of biological clocks of organisms, which account for activity during the day and sleeping during the night. So for this experiment, the rotation of the Earth was modified through the use of turntables. So... The research team brought along several species as part of their experiments, bean plants, cockroaches, fruit flies, cockleburr plants, bread mold fungi, as well as 19 hamsters. So the actual results of the experiment were negligible, you know, they were whatever. But the hamsters were eventually kept on as pets afterwards, and they actually had several litters of babies being born and they technically count as the first recorded births of any species on the continent. Although I guess realistically we have to end on a bit of a bummer because most of the young died or even more horrifically were eaten by the parents, which I learned in writing this episode is a issue among many hamster breeds. So glad I did not keep hamsters as a child. That would be horrifying. No, I think rabbits do that as well. Oof. What Oof. do we care? Pigs do that. Like sometimes if they've been for a reason or another, they decide that their young cannot reach adulthood or they're not fit enough. They just, something just snaps and they just kill them all. Yeah, I think my mom used to feel like that about me. So I guess that's understandable. Um, but you're here now. Yeah, much to her chagrin. But it's not all sadness, because three did survive until midwinter, so... Oh, that's you know. great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in, in retrospect, it's a bigger and better run than many of the other animals we've talked about today. But the remains of the others are likely somewhere on the continent, ready to extremely confuse some future zooarchaeologists, and that really, I... Shout out to them. There's a lot going on in this continent. I hope they figure out what Big Dairy was. Otherwise, it's not going to make sense. But Godspeed to those people. Do you think the turntables are still there? Like, I'm just trying to think about like all these animals and plants on a lazy Susan in Antarctica spinning around. Like, <laughs> like was it fast or slow? Like, because I... I've, how slow does it have to be to like match the rotation of the Earth? Yeah, that's what I was be, thinking. Like, spinning really fast, so it must be like a lazy Susan, you know, like a like a yeah slowly, like a rotating cake stand, you know. Maybe they use it as a cake stand now. Who knows? I don't know. It seems like anything goes in Antarctica, including any species, even if there's a treaty in place. But uh, yeah, so we did it. We we made it through the world. Simona, any last thoughts and remarks about our our wild trip through all of the continents? No. <laughs> you tired? You tired from this trip that we've taken? Just tired of all the death that we've about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, kind of a bummer episode to end on. I mean, we had to talk about Antarctica. I thought it would be a funny way to end the series, but I mean, it's tough tough to live in antarctica it's tough for humans even today and i don't understand why anyone does it but i guess it's good that they do it because we learn a lot that's science it's for science and all that i mean it's like how i also don't understand why anyone would want to be an astronaut 
<laughs> just I love I love comfort. <laughs> All that seems too much. Uh, I guess maybe do we have to do a zoo archaeology of space soon? I mean, I would love to do a zoo archaeology of the xenomorph. Home Among Us wouldn't. I, we'll, we'll have to we'll have to talk later about that because I also kind of want to do one on <laughs> the xenomorph. But that is neither here nor there because it's in space. And uh, I think fictional. we should just... Yeah, and, and fictional. So uh, we'll hold that thought. And uh, if, you, if people really want to hear that, let us know. Because you can contact us at ArcheoAnimals on Twitter. We are uh, also obviously on any kind of podcast platform, wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends about us. Uh, subscribe to us or follow us. I forgot what the terminology is these days. Leave us a review. That's great. Otherwise, you can just send the link around. We are obviously at Animal Archaeology Podcast Network.com. And yeah, obviously, we're happy to hear about what you want us to talk about. For our next episode, we will be belatedly celebrating our 50th episode. So, for those of you who have stuck around since one, first of all, shout out to my mom. I assume she's the only one who has. And two, Thanks a lot. We've been doing this for a weirdly long time, actually, because I think we're at, what, almost five years, four years now? Over four years. I think it was four years. We started May 2018. Yeah. So we've been doing this a while, and we've now finally hit 50 episodes. We may be slow, but we are full of value. We get there. Slow and steady wins the whatever podcast race. I don't know. This has been Alex Fitzpatrick and Simona Falanga. We will see you next episode. Otherwise, listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Laura Johnson. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 